Well, take your Bibles and turn back to the Gospel of John, where we are going to be, continue our study in this great uh, book of the Bible. And uh, if you're visiting with us this morning, this is uh, kind of what we do here at Lakeside as we pick a book and we go through it. And uh, sometimes it takes us a few months, sometimes it takes us a few years. And uh, we're not sure how long it's going to take us to get through uh, the Gospel of John, but we're having fun so far and uh, started it back in the fall and uh, we have arrived at John chapter 4. So we're making some progress here, another chapter, um, John chapter 4. And here we find um, the classic story of the woman at the well. And uh, we're going to be looking at the story in its entirety this morning. And it goes from verse 1 all the way to verse 42. Now those of you that are used to my preaching um, you can relax, okay? Um, this is a narrative text, and so typically you think 42 verses. Ken, doing 42 verses, we could be here till 6 o'clock tonight. Um, but uh, this is a narrative text. It's not an epistle, and so it's easier to run through these verses. And, and really, I think that's the best way to, to understand a narrative and to uh, teach it in its story form. And, uh, and so we just want to look at the big picture here and get the whole uh, sweeping view of this account and not just break it up into little pieces and kind of you, you, you miss the forest, right, for all the trees. And so I'd like just to see this, have us see this story uh, all at once this morning. And so um, because of the length of the passage, I'm not going to read it as I begin, but we'll just go through it um, as we go. Well, we know that water... Water is essential to everything in life, our health, food, energy, transportation, nature, uh, virtually every product that people all over the world use on a daily basis, they need water. Uh, those of us who live in, in, in a part of the world where uh, we have an abundant supply of fresh water, we take water for granted. Let's face it. I don't think about water. Do you? Uh, I just wake up and know I can turn on a faucet, turn on a hose, uh, turn on a shower, flush a toilet, uh, get a glass of water out of the fridge. I don't think about water. And uh, we, we rarely consider the fact that clean, safe water is, is scarce in most parts of the world. And it's hard for us to, to fathom that over one billion people today do not have access to safe water drink. That's one out of every six people on planet Earth. As a result, millions of people worldwide are sickened by disease, they're weakened by parasites, and 15,000 people die every day from some form of waterborne disease. In an effort to solve this water problem or water shortage, if you will, there are countless secular and Christian organizations dedicated to providing clean, safe drinking water to as many people as possible. You can just uh, do a Google search like I did this week, and I just typed in water for the world, and it came up with over almost 2 million uh, responses. Uh, many of them were organizations with solutions and, and uh, ways to solve this water problem throughout the world. Well, there's a far greater tragedy than the water problem in our world, and that is the thousands of people all over the world who are dying and going to hell every day because they lack the spiritual water that is essential for eternal life. Every single person on this planet was created by God with a thirsty soul that can only be quenched by Him. And people, their entire lives, 
try to satisfy that thirst with the things of this world, things like wealth, things like fame, things like power, relationships, entertainment, immoral sex, drugs, alcohol, academic degrees, accomplishments, you name it. But nothing on this earth ever seems to fully satisfy the insatiable thirst that we have in our souls. And that's why God shouted out to us from his word in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 55. He said, ho! That was God's way of saying, hey, listen up. Trying to get our attention. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and what is good and delight yourself in abundance. In other words, God was saying, why waste your time and money and energy pursuing things that will never ultimately satisfy you? Come find your satisfaction and fulfillment and happiness in me. And yet as sinners, we're all guilty of responding to that call and we foolishly forsake God and we try to find happiness in other things besides him. The prophet Jeremiah said it best in Jeremiah 2, verse 13. He said, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. In other words, rather than drinking water from the pure, ever-flowing, all-satisfying fountain of God, we sip from the polluted, fleeting disappointing wells of the world which leave us feeling dirty and depressed and sick and disillusioned and eventually we will die and spend eternity away from the presence of God in hell if we keep drinking from these sinful wells. That's the bad news. The good news is is that God loves us so much that he doesn't want to see us die in our sin. He doesn't want to see us die of thirst. And since man refused to listen to him the first time when he called out through his word to quench our thirst in him and in him alone, he decided to come to earth and tell us himself. And so the word became flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. And once again, God called out to us through his son, Jesus, who said, John 7, verses 37 and 38, if any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. And so here in John chapter 4, the story is told of a woman who came face to face with this fountain of living water, God himself in the form of Jesus Christ. And this woman at the well, as she's typically referred to, I think represents every thirsty soul who has ever walked this earth. And in his classic dialogue with with the woman at the well, Jesus models for us how to share the life-giving message of salvation with unbelievers by appealing to their their innate God-given thirst and pointing them to the only one who will ultimately satisfy them. And so we've got a lot to learn this morning from this from this story, and I've broken it up into two sections, uh, verses one through twenty-six. We we see how Christ reached a parched heart, 
And then in verses 27 through 42, we see how Jesus taught his disciples about reaping a plentiful harvest. And so we're going to look at these two sections this morning, reaching a parched heart and reaping a plentiful harvest. Let's look first of all at reaching a parched heart. Verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. And so we learned about this last week when we looked at the last account of John the Baptist and how John's disciples were a little offended that Jesus was getting more attention than their leader, and they thought it was a big competition. And uh, John had to set him straight and say, hey, this isn't a competition. In fact, I'm excited that Jesus is eclipsing my ministry uh, because it's all about him anyway. And I was simply here to prepare the way. And so he must increase, right? I must decrease so that he can increase. Well, Jesus was indeed growing in popularity. And it wasn't long before his ministry surpassed that of John the Baptist. And his sudden rise to prominence had caught the attention of the Pharisees just like John the Baptist had earlier. And Jesus knew it was only a matter of time before he collided head-on with these false religious leaders. And in the same way they went out to the wilderness to, to, to get to know who John was, surely they would come out to get to know who he, who he was. And so to avoid this premature conflict, he wisely withdrew from Judea and headed to Galilee. Galilee was where he was from, and so he was going back to his uh, home area. Notice verse 4, he had to pass through Samaria. He had to pass through Samaria. Now, Samaria is the central region of the land of Israel with Judea to the south and and Galilee to the north. In fact, if you're not familiar with the land of Israel, you could just turn to the back of your Bible and there's a, a series of maps back there and there should be one titled Palestine in the time of Jesus. And you can just look there really quickly and see kind of how, you, how it's laid out is Judea's in the south, Samaria's in the middle, and Galilee is in the north. And so the shortest route from Judea where Jesus was to Galilee was a, was a straight shot through Samaria. However, in those days, whenever Jews traveled north and south in the land of Palestine, they purposely avoided going through Samaria. They would travel around it, either uh, across the Jordan River and up uh, the side of the Jordan, east side of the Jordan River and then back into Galilee, or they would come down the coastline uh, along the Mediterranean Sea and, and then shoot over uh, to Jerusalem. You say, well, why would they do that? Well, they didn't want to defile themselves by setting foot in unclean territory. In fact, if they ever had to go to Samaria, when they left the border, they would take their sandals off and they would shake the dust off because they didn't want to carry in that contaminated earth into uh, their pure region. You say, well, what, where did that all come from? Well, let me give you a quick history lesson on the nation of Israel that's going to help you understand the rift between the Jews and the Samaritans. Now, you remember the first three kings of Israel were who? Saul, David and David's son Solomon. After Solomon died, the nation uh, divided. Um, uh, Jeroboam didn't want to submit to uh, Rehoboam, who was the son of of Solomon. And so he rebelled and he took uh, 10 tribes into the northern region of Palestine. Uh, They were known as Israel. The two southern tribes led by Rehoboam that were faithful to Rehoboam were, were, were called Judah. 
And the capital of the northern kingdom was Samaria, which eventually became known, uh, really the name used for the entire northern kingdom. If you've been here on Wednesday nights, you know that the nation of Israel was very rebellious against the Lord. They didn't listen to the prophets that God sent to, to lead them to repentance. They had committed spiritual adultery. Uh, they were into idolatry and morality. And so God uh, promised to punish them if they didn't repent. And so in 722 BC, Assyria laid siege to the 10 northern tribes living in Samaria. And they took most of the population back to Assyria in exile, but they left a few Jews uh, there to till the land, and they imported a bunch of non-Jews into the land who would be loyal to Assyria. Well, what happened was these Jews that were left behind uh, intermingled with and intermarried with these Gentiles, and it created this mixed race. And so the Samaritans were viewed by the Jews as half-breeds, mongrels, and they didn't want anything to do with the Samaritans. Well, about 200 years later, uh, the, southern, the two southern tribes, Judah, uh, known as Judah and Benjamin, but they rebelled against the Lord as well, and God brought Babylon to uh, punish them, and so Babylon led them off into exile into Babylon. And then after the Babylonians were conquered by the Medes and the Persians, the Persian king Cyrus gave the Jews permission to return from captivity to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem under Zerubbabel and Ezra. Well, the Samaritans were excited that the Jews were back uh, in Jerusalem, and they offered to help them rebuild the temple because they wanted to worship there too, but the Jews refused to, uh, their help because they didn't think they had anything in common with them. And so feeling snubbed by the Jews, the Samaritans said, fine, we'll build our own temple. And so they built their own temple at Mount Gerizim, even though God had made it clear that they were only to worship in Jerusalem at the temple that Solomon had built. Well, the problem was that the Samaritans only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament as authoritative, and so they didn't believe the teaching of the book of Joshua about the priority of worshiping in Jerusalem. Well, to add insult to injury, um, the Samaritans helped the Syrians in their wars against the Jews, uh, and the Jewish high priest at the time retaliated by burning the Samaritan sanctuary in Mount Gerizim. So you can see, going back and forth, there was a lot of bad blood between the Jews and the Samaritans, and they did everything they could to never associate with one another. And so when John wrote that Jesus had to go through Samaria, it was not necessarily geographically or customarily true. Um, he didn't have to go through Samaria because there was, everyone else was going around. But it was true providentially, right, that he had to go through Samaria because Jesus had a divine appointment with a woman at a well who needed to be saved from her life of sin. And so here we are in verse 5. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Sychar um, is a city that is located in an area that is very rich in Jewish history, as John mentioned here. Uh, it was nearby the city of Shechem, where Jacob had settled and, uh, after he returned to Canaan, after fleeing from Esau. Uh, he had given the land to his son Joseph. Joseph's bones were buried in this region. Uh, when, he was, uh, when they brought him back from uh, Egypt, uh, when they entered the promised land after being wandering the wilderness for 40 years, they buried Joseph's bones here. Jacob's well was here. 
Jacob had uh, sunk a shaft here uh, into an underground stream that flowed year-round at the foot of Mount Gerizim. And uh, notice just the, almost, the comment you could almost just breeze over in verse 6. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. And uh, you know John wrote his gospel to highlight the deity of Christ, right? To prove that Jesus was indeed God. But he doesn't want us to forget that Jesus was also a man. And here we have an expression of Jesus' humanity, that he, just like every other human, experienced hunger and thirst and weariness. And so he was there sitting, it says, at the sixth hour. Now, we don't know if this was Roman time or Jewish time. If it was Roman time, this would be six o'clock in the evening. Uh, I prefer to think it was Jewish time. Uh, that would be at high noon when the sun was the highest in the sky. And so as Jesus sat there on this short stone wall surrounding the well, he was obviously hot and thirsty, but he had nothing to draw water up from that well. But then here comes his appointment. Verse 7, there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So the disciples had left Jesus at the well to rest while they went into town to buy some lunch. And uh, here came Jesus' lunch appointment. Right on schedule, a woman with a water pot probably on her head. Um, Normally, women would gather water in a group, either early in the day or later in the day when it was cooler. And so the fact that this woman came alone in the scorching heat of the midday sun, I think tells us that she was a social outcast. And as we're going to see, her promiscuous lifestyle was was public knowledge, and most likely she was scorned by the other women in her city. And so that dry, empty pot that was on her head really was symbolic of her dry, empty soul. And so we're going to see how Jesus creatively engaged this hurting woman with a part soul by asking her for the very thing she needed the most. What did she need the most? She needed a drink. Not of the water from Jacob's well, but she needed a drink of Jesus. She needed a drink of spiritual water. So he says, hey, give me a drink. Kind of setting her up for what was about to come. Notice verse 9. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan woman? And John helps us out by tacking on a little parenthetical statement to the woman's response. He says, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So here, this woman was shocked that a Jew would talk to a Samaritan, let alone to a Samaritan woman. This, this was a major breach in social customs of the day. It went, it went against all the normal prejudices. First of all, men never talked to women in public because they were considered inferior. Okay, That was the Jewish mindset back then. Secondly, Jews would never share any kind of vessel to drink or eat out of as a Samaritan because they considered them to be ceremonially unclean. Thirdly, a rabbi of Jesus' stature would never have a conversation with someone with such a sordid reputation as this woman because people would ask questions. People would wonder, well, what is he doing talking to that woman? Doesn't he know her immoral background? 
Well, guess what? Jesus could care less about any of that stuff. None of that stuff mattered to him. Here was a woman in need, and he wanted to meet her need. Verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And so Jesus just goes, gets right out there, gets right into the conversation. And he's offering her the gift of God which is the free gift of salvation in him, through him, Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. We are not saved uh, through our works, right? We're saved by grace through faith alone. It's not of ourselves. It's a gift from God. And so he's, he's offering her salvation, and, and he's basically saying, listen, if you knew who you were talking to, you would be asking me for a drink. And, and, and not just a drink of, of this earthly water, uh, this temporal water, but th- th- this living water. And, and the term living water was, a, was an expression that was used in the Old Testament from time to time to describe God pouring out his power and blessing through the Holy Spirit. And so the prophets looked forward to the day when living waters would flow from Jerusalem, and it was always in reference to the, to the coming of the Messiah. In fact, the book of Revelation talks about the water of life in heaven that will quench the thirst of those who drink it forever. And so Jesus came from heaven to provide this woman and us this water of life, this heavenly water, this spiritual water. Verse 11, she said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? So obviously this conversation that immediately turned to the spiritual realm is just right over her head, right? She's not connected at all. She thinks he's talking about this water, and probably we we would as well. And so she was thinking that maybe he was thinking he was better than Jacob and uh, the water was somehow better than Jacob? Where, where do you find this water? Uh, this is the well we've been living off of for centuries. You're, you're telling me there's another well around here somewhere? That you, you Tell me where it is. Verse 13, Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And so this supernatural water that that Jesus was was talking about, this this, this water uh, would, would be so powerful that when a person drinks it, their life is instantly transformed and their soul is completely and permanently satisfied. By the way, that's convicting to those of us who have received Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We have learned about the sufficiency of Christ, how all-satisfying Christ should be, right, from the book of Colossians, and yet we still set him aside and go out looking for satisfaction. And what we're saying is essentially Jesus is not enough. Talk about an insult to our Lord when we have to find something else in this world to make us happy, to fulfill us, to satisfy us. It should be, as he says here, 
Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. The question is, what do you do when you thirst? Do you, do you try to slake that thirst in your relationship with Christ or you to go somewhere else? By the way, this water, he says, will well up, springing up to eternal life. In other words, this, you drink this water and you'll live forever. We've all read the stories, right? The novels that watch the movies about the fountain of youth, finding the fountain of youth, discovering the fountain of youth, right? It's a classic analogy in, in, in history that, oh, all these people that have ventured to find, they put their life at risk to discover the fountain of youth, to get one drink from that fountain of youth so that they could what? Live forever. Well, that's a myth, right? Not true. This is no myth. This is true. One sip of this right? One sip of Jesus in your life, okay? When you commit your life to Christ, you will live forever. Verse 15, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so I'll not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. So now she's tracking a little bit more, right? She's, she's interested. He's piqued her interest. She, she wants this special kind of water that Jesus was talking about, so she wouldn't have to keep coming to Jacob's well and lug water back and forth. So she's still on the real, this water here, right? She's thinking, you're going to make my life easy, right? This is like giving a woman a, a microwave back then, right? Are you kidding me? I, I don't have to make the fire and cook. You're giving me a microwave? Yeah, I don't have to go to the well anymore. You know, it says, give me this water, she says, and I will not be thirsty nor come the way here all the way, have to come here all the way to draw. Again, at the risk of, 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 of spiritualizing or allegorizing the text here, I would simply say that I think her daily trips to the well in many ways were representative of her, of her life, that her need for water was never fully met, and so she had to keep coming back day after day for more water. And in a very similar way, as we're about to see, she had this thirst this need, this desperate need for male attention and affection that was never fully met. And so she had to keep going back again and again to, to other men, which resulted in a miserable chain of failed relationships. And in order to end this vicious cycle, she needed to find happiness and fulfillment in a relationship with Jesus Christ, who was the man who she had been truly longing for her entire life, who would forever satisfy her. Well, whether or not she fully understood what Jesus was offering her at this point, this woman seemed to sincerely want it. But before she could have it, she had to understand how badly she needed it. And so Jesus struck the one nerve in her life that I think best exposed her need for a savior from sin. Notice verse 16, he said to her, Go, call your husband, and come here. Can't imagine what went through that woman's mind when he kind of put his finger on the most painful point in her entire life. Because Jesus knew that she had lived in a moral life and that she was living in sin at that very moment. Notice. Verse 17, she's very open and honest. She says, the woman said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you have correctly said I have no husband. 
For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have truly said. And so Jesus knew all about this woman. And again, while Jesus limited his use of his divine attributes while he was in a body here on earth, there were times that God permitted him, if you will, to use these things. And so obviously here is Christ's omniscience. He knows everything. He knows what's in a person's heart. He knows about our background. He knows everything we've been through in life. He knows our thoughts, right? And so he says, yeah, you're right. You don't have a husband. In fact, you've had five husbands, and the guy you're, you're, you're living with right now isn't your husband. And I would say this. The fact that she was shacking up with this guy who, who she wasn't even married to is probably good evidence to lead us to believe that the five previous marriages had ended in some kind of divorce. This wasn't like she had been widowed five times. You know, a sad story, five husbands, they all died. I probably think she went from one man to the next, and most likely she had been used and abused by the men in her life, and so she desperately needed someone to save her from this downward spiral of sin. And yet before she could be saved out of this lifestyle, Jesus wanted her to acknowledge her guilt and shame and be willing to repent. And so he's dealing with her sin. And so far, she's coming clean. She's being honest and confessing to him the truth. You know, there may be someone here this morning who is a lot like this woman. Jesus knows all about your sinful past. In fact, he knows the sin you may be in right now, presently this morning. And I think the first step to coming to Christ is acknowledging that you're a sinner who needs to be forgiven for your sin. To know that Jesus knows. You're not fooling anybody. You might be fooling your family, your spouse, your kids, your parents, your boss, right? Your classmates. But you're, there's no fool in Jesus. He knows exactly where you've been, what you're up to, and where you're headed. The point is, you can't be saved unless you're willing to admit that you're lost. And guess what? We're all lost. But only some of us are willing to admit it. And so that's what he was getting at with this girl. He wanted her to admit that she was lost, that she needed a savior. Well, what happens next, I think, is what often happens when you're in a discussion with someone, maybe sharing Christ with someone, and you may have experienced this before, and you're talking with somebody about the Lord, and you start talking about sin, and it starts to get real personal and uncomfortable, and you can tell they're kind of getting antsy, and uh, they're, 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 their eyes are getting fidgety, right? And they're like, well, yeah, what about Adam? Did he have a belly button? <laughs> right? Or... Or, uh, yeah, Jonah in the whale. Are you kidding me? Do you really believe that story? I mean, are you, come on, evolution. It's obvious. Look, there's all these scientific evidence that evolution is real. There is no God, right? What about the heathen in Africa? That's not fair. What, what's going to happen to them, right? And they try to get the focus off of their sin onto something else, right? Notice verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet, our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. 
And so the fact that this complete stranger, never had met her before in his life, had, had full knowledge, intimate knowledge of her sinful life, convinced her that this was no ordinary rabbi. He must have been some kind of prophet. And so she decides to ask him a question, um, really, I think, to get the focus maybe off of her sinful lifestyle, but maybe to, to test this guy a little further and say, who is this guy? And so she brings up a theological controversy that had been brewing between the Jews and the Samaritans for hundreds of years. We've already talked about this. Mount Gerizim, right? That uh, our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And and this whole encounter took place in the shadow of Mount Gerizim. In fact, she may have even pointed to the mountain and said, hey, well, what about this mountain here? That this this is where our fathers worshipped. And you people, you Jews, say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And so she's like, what's, what's up with that? What, what do you say about that? And then Jesus goes into this section about what true worship is all about. He says in verse 21, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. And so Jesus was quick to point out to her that the Samaritan worship really was ignorant and pointless because the Messiah was going to come through the Jews. And whether they liked it or not, the Jews were the people through whom God chose to reveal his word and his son. And yet, nevertheless, it wouldn't matter where people worshiped because soon both places would become obsolete. He says it a second time, verse 23, but an hour is coming and now is. In other words, it's happening right now when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. That hour that is coming that Jesus was referring to there was his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, which would introduce the church age and and really a whole new way of worshiping God. Worship would no longer be centered in the temple, but in men's hearts, the hearts of those who receive Christ as their Lord and Savior. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 talks about how we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so when Jesus died on the cross, you remember the veil inside the temple that separated the Holy of Holies where God's presence was uh, uh, from the rest of the temple. That, that, that veil was torn really from the top down, showing that it was God's action, right? Symbolizing that through Christ, people could have direct access to God. So the point is, we don't have to go to a temple. We don't have to go to Jerusalem. We don't have to go through a priest. We can worship God anywhere, anytime because of what Christ accomplished on the cross. He gained for us access to God. But notice the phrase here in verse 23, an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. See, the woman was concerned about where to worship, and Jesus was concerned about who should worship. Who, a true, who, who is a true worshiper and who's a false worshiper has nothing to do with where you worship, but how you worship. 
And a true worshiper, according to Jesus, understands that the only way that you can have access to God and worship God is through faith in the finished work of Jesus on their behalf. And so a good place to start is there's a whole lot of people in the world who are worshiping. But guess what? If they're not worshiping God through a relationship with Jesus Christ, they're not true worshipers. They're false worshipers. They think they're true worshipers, but if they don't know Jesus Christ, right, because he is the only way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father. No man worships the Father but through me. So true worshipers know Jesus. But notice verse 24. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. This is a classic statement on the nature of God, that God does not have a physical body. God is spirit. In other words, he's invisible. He's present in all places at at all at the same time. He's omnipresent. And therefore, he can't be confined to a single location, to some temple or some church or some monastery, right? He's spirit, and therefore, he must be worshipped. Those who worship him, you want to worship God, you got to worship him in spirit and in truth. And I think in that simple phrase, those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth, Jesus was confronting not just the Samaritans' false worship, but the Jews' false worship. See, the Jews had reduced, re- reduced worship to an elaborate system of, of, of rituals and rules. And yet to, to worship in spirit means that you worship inwardly with a proper heart attitude rather than just performing a bunch of rituals and traditions. Some of you maybe grew up in that kind of environment, right? That church tradition and you, you know, worship to you, a worship service to you was, was, was going, walking into the, your church and, and sitting down, you know, standing up, kneeling down, saying a certain prayer, turning around, you know, spinning around, doing all these certain, it was just going through the motions, but there was no heart into it. You were there going through all the motions, but your heart wasn't there. You are worshiping in spirit. Well, that was the Jews, the Samaritans, on the other hand, had developed their own religion without any biblical authority. They just said, fine, we're not going to follow the scriptures. We're just going to go, we're just going to do our own thing. And yet to, to worship in truth means that we must worship God in a way that is consistent with the truth that he has revealed in his word and his son. The Samaritans just blew off the, the command of scripture to only worship where? In Jerusalem. They said, well, we'll just, go, we'll just build another temple. So they were, they, were not, they were not worshiping according to the truth of God's word. And so Jesus was rebuking the worship practices of both the Jews and the Samaritans. And I would just simply say this. I think this also serves as a rebuke to the two extremes in worship today. When you think about even just the church, okay, there's basically two extremes. There's on one extreme or one side of the spectrum is, is ritualistic worship, we already described that. We just kind of go through the motions, right? But there's no heart. There's no passion. There's no emotion. You're just do, going through a list of things, checking them off and saying, okay, I did my duty. Now I can leave. That's ritualistic worship. That's not worshiping in spirit. And then you've got what you could call charismatic worship, right? Where people are just doing whatever they feel like doing, right? And they're jumping all over the place and doing a bunch of stuff that you don't see any basis in scripture for, 
right? There's all this passion, there's all, there's all this emotion, but there's nothing scriptural about it. And so one does things with emotion and passion without scripture. One does things with maybe all this scripture with no emotion and passion. According to Jesus, both of them are wrong. Neither of them honor God. God's not interested, right, in that kind of worship. And then we come to my favorite section here and would have loved to been a fly in the wall or a fly on that well, if you will, to see what, how this played out. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And so I don't know if she said that because she didn't necessarily understand Jesus' answer or care for his answer. Maybe she was just saying, yeah, I know the Messiah is coming and he'll sort all this stuff out for us. Or if it was truly this confidence, and I think it was, it was this confidence that, you know what, I know the Messiah is coming, and when he comes, he's going to straighten all this stuff out. And she was hopeful that there was a day to come when there was going to be this one that knew the answers to all these questions. And then here it is, verse 26. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Literally, in the original text, he simply said, I am who speak to you. Who you're talking to is I am. We put the he in there in the English because it makes more sense to us, but he was literally, I think, taking the the, the name of God that he revealed himself to Moses when Moses said, hey, God, when I uh, go to Pharaoh and, and I say, hey, God says, let my people go. And he says, well, what God is it? What, what should I tell him? What's your name? And he said, just tell him I am sent you. I am. And so he's saying, guess what? She said, yeah, I know the Messiah's coming. And uh, he's going to set all this stuff straight. He's going to answer all our questions. And Jesus said, you know what? I'm the Messiah. I'm him. I'm the guy you're looking for. I'm the guy you've been waiting for. I'm the guy with all the answers. And I think what's so beautiful about this is because normally Jesus would urge his disciples and others not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. And when pressed whether or not he was the Messiah, he would affirm it. But up until this point, This is the only person whom he freely declared that he was the Messiah. This this parched woman who was thirsting for a Savior. And you're like, whoa, this is awesome, man. He's got her on the line. He's reeling her in, right? She's ready to pray the prayer, sign the card, right? She's ready to go here. All she needs is, hey, pray, pray this prayer. Bow your head with me, pray this prayer. Man, she's in. And right at that moment, The climax of this encounter between this woman and Jesus, right at this moment, guess who shows up with the burgers and fries? (laughs) Have you ever been witnessing to someone, you know, and and, uh, 
it's going really good. And then one of your buddies comes along and just kind of walks up, do do do, you know, and it just kind of butts into the conversation. And you're like, and you're like, are you serious, dude? Are you that clueless that you didn't see what was going on here? That you just interrupted me sharing the gospel with this person, and 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 it totally messes up the opportunity, right? And good thing we're Calvinists, we're, we know God's sovereign, right? And and you know, if they're going to get saved, they're going to get saved, right? It's like, oh, great, now they're not going to get saved. Way to go. Right? We trust the sovereignty of God, but still they messed up this moment, right? Well, from Jesus' perspective, this didn't mess up the moment. It was perfect. It was exactly, he couldn't have asked for a better teachable moment for his disciples. And he wasn't about to let this opportunity pass to teach his disciples this invaluable lesson about reaching out to lost people who were ripe for the picking. Remember, this is early on here. Jesus just chose these guys just maybe a few weeks, a few months earlier. And so, so far, they're just kind of following Jesus around and enjoying the ride, right? This is kind of cool. We're going to hang out with this guy, the Messiah. And, and, and so they weren't doing much other than going to get the groceries, and Jesus is like, hey, boys, it's time to step it up because I got bigger plans. I, I need you guys around not just to go get the groceries. I, I need you to be here to help reap this harvest. And that's why I, I called you guys. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And so this is a huge um, transitional point in, in Jesus' relationship with the disciples. Things would be different from this point on, that they would realize, oh, I get it. Being Jesus' disciples means that we tell other people about him and we bring other people to him and we don't just follow him around and kind of look forward to those little Bible studies, those little retreats over on the other side of the Sea of Galilee that we get to do together. And, you know, they, they were, that's kind of what they were living for now. But that, those were all a means to an end and they didn't get that yet, but they're about to get that. So we move to the second section, reaping a plentiful harvest reaping a plentiful harvest. Notice verse 27. At this point, his disciples came, and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman, yet no one said, what do you seek, or why do you speak with her? And so here, the disciples were, with all the prejudices that we talked about earlier, right? They were shocked to see Jesus talking with a woman in public, and, and a Samaritan woman at that. And they were all thinking it, Right? They're all going, what in the world is going, what is he doing? You can't do that. We're going to teach this guy some etiquette. But no one had the guts to ask him, hey, what's up? What were you guys talking about? All, they, all, all that happened, and this is, I mean, just pick, try to picture this. This is classic. They, 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 here they come walking. You know, they come walking up. And, and all they see from a distance is Jesus sitting on the side of this well, talking with this woman, and they're getting closer, and all of a sudden, the water pot drops to the ground, and she just books it back to town. She's just, they're, they're walking from town. She drops the water pot, and all of a sudden, pshoo, she goes whipping by them back to the city where they just came from. And they're like, what's going on? Verse 28. So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, come see a man who told me all the things that I've done. This is not the Christ, is it? And they went out of the city and were coming to him. 
And so if I was one of the disciples, I'd, I'd be like, hey, what just went down here? I'm curious. What, 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 were you, what were you guys talking about? The point is she was so excited. This is the guy. This is the Messiah. And so she dropped the pot. She runs back to the village and begins to tell the people there that, hey, there's this guy over here at the well that I met today, and he knew all about me, and he claims to be the Messiah. Do you think maybe you could be? And so her encounter with Christ had such a profound impact on her that those who had previously avoided her were so impressed by her transformed countenance even, just her countenance. And the things that she said, they followed her back out to the well. Something had changed in that woman's life from the time she went out to the well and went back to her city. Something happened. Something was different about her. Verse 31. So here here comes the the woman with all the people, right? They're coming. Meanwhile, back at the well, verse 31. This is kind of funny the way John lays it out. Meanwhile, back at the well, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. Come on, man, eat, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? Did you, get, did you come back early? I thought we were all together. Did you bring him something? Did you, I didn't bring him something. Did you bring something? No, I didn't bring him something. So they thought that somebody had already brought him some food. Again, talk about ding, right, going over their heads like the woman at the well initially, right? And what they didn't understand, that Jesus was simply saying, listen, sharing the good news of salvation with this woman was more satisfying to my soul than any food could be to my body. He got more joy and pleasure out of talking with others about spiritual things than he did about eating physical food. And you may have experienced that. You maybe took someone out to lunch or had some time with someone that you'd been praying for an opportunity to share the gospel, and all of a sudden, there you are eating, and you've ordered, you got your food, and you begin to eat, and the conversation turns to the things of Christ, and next thing you know, your fork's down, and you forgot about what you just ordered. And you, you forgot that you were even hungry. You forgot it was lunchtime. You're just, you're just engaged. You know this is way more important. This is way more exciting. And unfortunately, at the time, while Jesus, all he cared about was reaching the lost, all the disciples cared about was eating lunch. That was their focus. And so he challenged them with the urgency of reaching out to lost, hurting people. Notice what he says to them in verse 35. He says, do you, not, do, not, do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They are white for harvest. It was probably December or January when this happened, which was about four months before the normal springtime harvest, the spot where they were standing most likely had been cultivated and, and it, the, the, it had already been planted and maybe the crops were beginning to just sprout up. And so he may have been saying, hey, look at, look at your eye. Look, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They're white for harvest. In other words, look, the stuff's starting to come up here. I think what may be more compelling than that, I think what Jesus was talking about when he said, listen, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They are white for harvest. Was what he said, what John said back in verse 30, they went out of the city and were coming to him. In other words, guys, look. 
Look, look up. Get your head out of the chicken nuggets, man, and look. <laughs> look, they're coming. Look at these people. And you just get this picture of these, this, this crowd of people coming from where the disciples just came from. And they're coming out to meet Jesus. Like a, and, and, and to Jesus, as he said, guys, look, it, it looks like a ripe harvest just ready for the picking. They need to be gathered up. And so the disciples have been so focused. You think about this. I mean, they'd been in that city. They'd been milling around with those people for the last, who knows, hour or two, right? Trying to get the groceries and trying to find lunch and put together a meal. And, and so they'd been associated with those people. And, 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 and yet they, they didn't see it. They were so focused on finding food in the city that they had failed to see all these lost, hurting people. And they had missed an opportunity to tell them, hey, they could, have said, they could have told, the as they were checking out of Walmart, right, in, in Shechem, right, wherever they were, checking, hey, guess what? Jesus is out there by the well. Why don't you come see him? They didn't even think about that. The woman, she came running back and said, hey, guys, I just met the Messiah. You got to come see him. The whole city. We're, we're, we're so much like the disciples, aren't we? Right? We get our little basket in the store, got your list, tunnel vision, right? Takes me twice as long than my wife's. That's why she doesn't make me go because she knows what takes her five minutes takes me an hour because I don't know where everything is, right? But I'm just focused. And man, we're just, we're just blowing by people. We're, there's, there's people all around us, just like the woman at the well, just like the people of this city that could very well be ripe for the pick. And how do we know? And so the, the entire town apparently was ripe and ready to respond. Notice verse 36, already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you now have entered into their labor. And this is a great concept here. And it's basically, he's saying that, that, that God had already prepared these people for salvation through the prophets who had prophesied about the coming of the Messiah. Maybe John the Baptist had, had spent some time there preparing the soil of their hearts to repent and receive Jesus. In other words, these other people had planted and watered, and now the disciples had the joy of reaping the harvest along with Christ. The Apostle Paul mentions this concept in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 when, when um, he found out that the church was bickering over, well, I'm of Apollos, and I'm of Paul, and I'm of Jesus, right? They were saying, well, who's your favorite guy, and I'm, I'm of this guy, and this is, what, this is what Paul said. He said, listen, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants or the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. You know, this is a great reminder to us that very few people are saved through the ministry of one person. Very few. It happens, but it's rare. Most people come to Christ after hearing the gospel multiple times. And typically, a person's salvation is a culmination of, of a series of events and conversations with various people. So listen, this should encourage you, right? You've got a burden for that 
spouse or that child or that parent or that brother or sister or that coworker, and, and, and you're, you get discouraged because, man, you've witnessed to them time and time again, and they just don't, don't seem to respond, and they've never given their life to Christ, and, or, or these opportunities don't ever seem to come up. And listen, God can and will use someone else to lead them to Christ. And that shouldn't make you lazy and go, oh, great, I'll just wait. I'll let somebody else do it, right? No, but it should encourage you to know that, listen, it's not all about you. you. You might be just planting seeds. You might just be watering. And somebody else is going to harvest it somewhere. But the bottom line is this, there's going to be people in heaven that you meet, and they're there because of a result of watching your life. And you never said a word to them because it was your testimony that sparked their interest. And they started thinking about the claims of Christ, and then somebody else shared the gospel with them, and they led them to Christ. But you were part of that. You planted the seed. And so everyone who has a part in a person's salvation, the point is we're going to all just be rejoicing. It's not like, okay, how many did you get, Joe? I got six. How many did you get? I got 44. You know, it's not like we're going to be keeping track, like who led the most people to Christ. It's a joint venture. Talk about organizations that come together to provide water for the world. This is, this is our organization. This is the church of Jesus Christ. This is the organization that God ordained to get the water, right, to solve the water problem in the world. And I'm not talking about physical water. Don't let it go bing like everybody else has been doing in this passage, right? I'm talking about spiritual water. We're the ones. We're the ones that have the privilege and the joy of going out into our community. Notice verse 39. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, who told me all the things that I've done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word, and they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the what? World. Don't miss that. So far, Jesus is primarily focused on who? His own people, the Jews. And he didn't want anybody to think that he was all about the Jews, but he was also about these half-breeds, right, these Samaritans, and not just about the half-breed Samaritans, he was, he, he was even about the Gentile dogs, us, right, Gentiles, that Jesus came not just to be the savior of the Jews, not just to be the savior of the Jews and the Samaritans who were sort of Jews, but he came to be the savior of the world. Jews and Gentiles alike. You know, this is a great lesson, kind of a a case study, if you will, on evangelism. And I think Jesus shows us here how how to reach people with the gospel, and how to not miss opportunities that are all around us. And, and we just need to rem- be reminded this morning as Christians that we have been given the incredible privilege of serving along, alongside Christ as his co-laborers, working side by side with him and one another, and sharing in the joy of harvesting souls for Christ. That's why we're here. That's why we gather together. This is a means, again, to an end, to go out there and, and, and to reap the harvest And so we need to 
We need to follow the command of Jesus this morning and lift up our eyes and see and look around us. This might sound like a shocking statement. Get your head out of the Bible and look up. <laughs> right? We're in, the, we're in the scriptures for a reason, right? To equip us and to prepare us so we're more effective witnesses out there. But sometimes all we want to do as Christians is let's get together for another Bible study. And that's all we ever want to do. And we forget that all the stuff we do, and I'm not knocking the Bible. Come on, this is like say Bible church, okay? We're into the Bible here, and that's okay. It's a good thing. But again, it's all a means to an end. Look up and see all these people that we pass by every day who need to hear their gospel at the gas station, at the, at the checkout counter, at work, at school. They're everywhere. And I tell you what, we, we probably pass by people just like this woman at the well. And, 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 and sometimes we know people's sinful background and sometimes we don't. And sometimes if we know their sinful background, like we know that guy at work or that lady at school in my class, that girl in my class, everybody knows they got a reputation. Like they're the last people that would be interested in Jesus Christ. And so we kind of purposely avoid, I'm not going to waste my time with them, right? Well, listen, I'm glad Jesus took some time with this lady. She was probably the last woman in that town you'd ever think would be interested in the gospel. And yet she was ripe for the picking. And so you don't know how desperate the person, people around you might be to find hope and forgiveness and meaning and true satisfaction in life. And it could be through your witness that that person comes to Christ. You say, whoa, 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 whoa. I, I, I don't know that I'm a very good witness. In fact, I don't even know how to witness. I never took a witnessing class. Never took a class on how to share the gospel. Well, I think this woman's zeal for the lost put the disciples to shame and should put us to shame too. She didn't take any class. She just got saved. That's all she needed, right? She got saved. And all she said was, hey, come see this guy who changed my life. And God used her simple but courageous testimony to win her entire town to Christ. God could use your simple testimony of, you know what? I don't know a whole lot of theology, but I know one thing. I was lost, but now I'm found. Jesus has saved me. He's transformed my life, and he can change your life too. And God can use your testimony to save your entire neighborhood, your entire family, your class, your work. You know, this woman's testimony I think is still reaping fruit because we don't know how many lost sinners have come to faith in Christ because of reading the story that's been preserved here in the pages of Scripture. Because guess what? There's a whole lot of people on this planet with thirsty souls who they get this. They, they, they can relate to this. They, they know that woman because that, that, that woman is them. And you might be here this morning and you, you can relate to this. You know what this woman, what her life was like and what went through her mind. And guess what? God can use her testimony to lead you to Christ so that you can have the joy that she found in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage that is just rich with, with, with so many practical um, 
life lessons for us. Lord, I pray first of all for anyone here who, who is that woman at the well. Maybe it's a guy at the well. But Lord, they're lost and they know it. And their life has just been a mess, a wreck apart from you. And that they would realize, Lord, that in Christ, they could find everything they've ever been looking for. And uh, he's, the miss, he's what's missing in their life, Lord, that they would understand that you would grant them repentance and faith today. And Lord, for the rest of us, Lord, that you would burden our hearts for the lost, that we would get, get our eyes up, Lord, and our heart right and looking and anticipating opportunities all around us, Lord, that you want us to be a part of reaping this harvest. And Lord, we're the ones who miss out when we don't. Um, engage in evangelism and sharing the gospel and witnessing to people and uh, inviting them to church and inviting them to study the Bible together. And Lord, I just pray you'd help us, all of us, just to do a better job of, of uh, living out our lives for Christ and just give us a burden and a passion to tell others about you. And we thank you that ultimately salvation is your work. It's not up to us that we don't have to feel any pressure at all. We just get to feel the joy and the pleasure of being a part of this wonderful uh, work of salvation. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.